Hey everybody, Chris Germer is on the show today and I was just so inspired, so moved. I just noticed I kept nodding my head, smiling, closing my eyes. There's moments where he shares about shame and what it means and compassion and how powerful it is. I hope you enjoy this episode with Chris Germer. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Chris Germer is with us. He's a clinical psychologist, a lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He developed with Kristen Neff the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, and that has now been taught to over how many people, Chris? It's hard to know for sure, but maybe 200, 250,000 people around the world. Wow. 250,000 people around the world. You've also co-authored two books together with Dr. Neff, The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook and Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. And uh, Chris spends most of his time lecturing and leading workshops around the world on mindfulness, on self-compassion. And you also authored The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. You've also co-edited two influential volumes on therapy And you maintain a small private practice in Arlington, Massachusetts. Does that feel right? That's all correct, to the best of my knowledge. (laughs) Welcome, Chris. It's great to have you on the Hoffman Podcast. Thank you, Drew. It's a privilege. Can I just ask you, in this moment, on this morning, what is in your head and your heart about self-compassion, about the work you're doing What feels important and alive to you in this moment? In this moment is uh, the awareness that uh, self-compassion is a stage on the path to liberation. It's not a complete program, but it's a powerful and overlooked way of responding to suffering, emotional, physical suffering. And we need to do that in order to have the freedom to explore even more deeply the nature of reality and who we are. So what's alive for me now is self-compassion in the context of the larger adventure of living. Self-compassion in the context of the larger adventure of life. Can you share a little bit about how you came to this field? Uh, I imagine it wasn't a crowded field when you first came into it. So a little bit of of your story. (laughs) That's a funny, fun way of saying it. It was not a crowded field. Yeah, now it's a lot more crowded. Now there are 5,000 articles on this. And when I got interested back in 2006, 
Kristen Neff had published the first paper on this in 2003. So it was really a, a nascent field. So I got interested because I'd been meditating for, oh, at least 20 years or more. And throughout that whole time, even though I was a clinical psychologist specializing in anxiety disorders, I suffered from public speaking anxiety and nothing I knew <laughs> could touch it, including meditation, which is to, you know, kind of make space for anxiety and, and so forth. Nothing worked. And so I suffered mightily for many years, especially when I was trying to talk about mindfulness in front of an audience <laughs> where you're supposed to be, you know, calm. And if you're going to walk the talk, you're supposed to look pretty cool, you know, kind of chill. And I was shaking like a leaf and it was hard to get words out. And so this was <laughs> problematic because I was interested in mindfulness this whole time. I was working with colleagues to integrate mindfulness into psychotherapy. But it was only when I learned self-compassion, which is really um, a complementary practice to mindfulness. It's embedded in mindfulness. It's a complementary practice. But it was only when I learned self-compassion, frankly, that the public speaking anxiety evaporated. And I could say that I have colleagues who wish I had a little more because now it's hard to shut me up. <laughs> the, the confidence and verbal acuity that comes from self-compassion has set you free. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately what it was about for me was I wasn't suffering from an anxiety disorder. I was suffering from a shame disorder. So I was trying to, you know, make room for anxiety in a, as a good mindfulness meditator would, but I didn't see or, and could not make room for shame, which is the experience of feeling for me, you know, fraudulent, incompetent, stupid, that experience was just not touchable. And what self-compassion does, this is really the nub of it, is it is kindness toward ourselves as imperfect people, as people who can be absorbed in shame, you know, shame is a universal emotion, as people who are incomplete, as people who are foolish, as people who are vulnerable, basically being a human being. Can we be loving and kind to ourselves when we suffer with the limitations of being human? And frankly, everything that happens in life can be in that category. It's a human limitation. So self-compassion is an embrace of our humanity, even when we're hurting, when we're wounded, when we're imperfect, when we're incomplete, and when we're ashamed. And when that happened, when I started to do that, I lost my fear and love came in its place. Joy arose. That fear of being judged by others turned into excitement and delight in what I was doing and, frankly, in the people I was speaking with. They had changed from being the enemy, which is the case when you have public speaking anxiety. You know, whoever you're talking to is the enemy because they can judge you. But when self-compassion started coursing through my veins, nobody was the enemy. They were, a, they were a loved one. You know, I just had the wish that everybody enjoys themselves and has a positive experience, and, but without attachment, you know, like it, I wouldn't be a failure if it didn't happen, you know. So that's the power of self-compassion. I appreciate you bringing up shame. Listeners will know, grads of the process, that we, we talk about shame in the process. We have students connect with some shameful moments in their lives, in the past, 
before our conversation, I'm grateful that you checked out the process and the Institute a little bit. And before we pushed record, you were just sharing what you appreciated about the approach that the process takes. Can you just share a little bit about that? Well, so Hoffman in you know, 1967 really put his finger on the pulse, which is that you know, so much of what we do unwittingly and repetitively that causes us suffering and others suffering is often due to disconnections in early childhood wounds. Naturally, as children, we reach out for comfort and love and affection. And because our parents and caregivers are humans, they can't return perfectly our yearnings and everybody experiences disconnections. And, you know, you line those up enough and then it gets lodged in our heads as a kind of negative core belief or something. And that's shame. What I really appreciated that Hoffman did was often when people talk about attachment history and attachment patterns, you know, like what we learn unconsciously before we even have a personhood is about interruptions in belonging and connection. And this is all really true. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's something deeper and more vulnerable that we're doing as babies and young children. We don't just want to be, you know, in the old Harry Harlow experiments, holding on to a terry cloth. We need to be loved. That means we need to have an experience of connection and belonging, but we also need to feel prized. We need to be special. We need to feel the tenderness. So basically, we need to be loved. And a lot of scientists, uh, particularly because love has been in those days, particularly in the 60s, you know, entirely in the province of spirituality and, and religion, the scientifically minded psychologists were trying to kind of, um, uh, you know, relanguage these things. So we talked about belonging, connection. But Hoffman was talking about love. And frankly, I think that's really closer to the actual felt experience of it. So another thing I like about the Hoffman process is it's experiential. And if we're going to be experiential, we need to be actually aware of what we're talking about. What, like, what is the experience? And I, frankly, I think the word love describes more accurately the totality of the thing that we are hungering for as children and the thing that we start to defend ourselves and armor ourselves against when it hurts. That armoring and that defending, we call the false self and the patterns that we develop as a way of trying to earn the love, a way of trying to get the love that we could never get. And it's those patterns that are, that are problematic in our life. They may have helped us survive when we were younger, but they have an expiration date. <laughs> we want them to have an expiration date. Probably when people show up at the Hoffman Institute, the expiration date has arrived. In other words, they're there because they're now wondering, what do you do after the expiration? <laughs> Chris, what do you find in teaching this, in talking about this? This is your life's work. How is it received? What's it like as you take it out into the world with the people you train, the people you speak to, what do you notice in that uh, interaction, in those connections? Well, first of all, that uh, just about everybody feels an enormous relief when they actually 
manage to give themselves compassion. You know, it's a relief. It's not hard work. It's not a struggle. You know, in fact, we say if it's a struggle, it's not self-compassion. What I see around the world, and, you know, I've taught this on just about every continent, it's just people are just so grateful when they give that, can give themselves permission to be self-compassionate and, frankly, know how to be self-compassionate because many people, particularly those who've been raised in environments that were not very compassionate, they don't even know how to do it. So it's almost like creating a new culture within which we can live in which compassion and especially self-compassion is welcome. In a nutshell, every single culture I've had a, the privilege of teaching in, people are way more compassionate toward others than themselves. Just about every culture prescribes compassion for others and even suggests that self-compassion is is a bad thing. But what we know for sure is that, you know, these 5,000 research articles show the opposite. <laughs> it's a good thing. It increases compassion for others. It decreases self-absorption. It, it's good for our physical health. You know, it, it makes us uh, strong and not weak. You know, it, hel it helps with coping and resilience when there are crises in, in our lives. So it's, it's so good for us, but most cultures suggest that one shouldn't do it. So when they get permission and then they actually have the experience, what I notice, Drew, is enormous relief. And some people have said to us, oh, how, how is it that this program has been disseminated so widely in such a short period of time? Kristen Neff, my collaborator, <laughs> she sums it up in two words. She says, well, self-compassion works. It works. So it's not, there's no shrewd marketing involved here. It's just that when people hear about it and practice it, they're grateful. It's a hidden resource, which we all have, but we haven't been tapping it. That quote by Kristen Neff, it works, feels important that it's empirically based, that this isn't just somebody's hunch or somebody's intuition, that there's data to prove that this works. Yeah, and that helps with the mental obstacles. You know, there are a lot of obstacles to self-compassion, not just the cultural ones, but individual ones. They're myths and misunderstandings. When people hear the term self-compassion, they think of self, they think of selfishness, they think of compassion, they think of, you know, just being kind of too open-hearted and going to get hurt. So they shy away. They don't actually realize that it's the opposite. People become less self-absorbed. <laughs> People who become more compassionate, they become more resilient, stronger. The research opens the door to self-compassion practice. It's kind of a mental thing, you know, like we give ourselves permission. Okay, I think I can do this, even though it may creep me out to think about it <laughs> because the research is there. It helps with buy-in, you know? That's great. You've said a couple of times, Chris, and it, I know that as students come to the process, they're in pain. And you use this, this term self-absorption. And there's something that happens when people are in pain that they become self-absorbed. And self-compassion decreases the self-absorption. It actually connects you. It feels counterintuitive, but there's just something there. I'm wondering if you could, we could dig in a little more. Yeah, for sure. So I, I appreciate, uh, Drew, that you put your finger on that thing. So often when we're self-absorbed, we experience we're actually in shame. 
In other words, when we're kind of wrapped up in ourselves, it's because the sense of self is under attack. We feel like we're kind of circling the wagon. The sense of self is under attack. And self-absorption or rumination is really a, a hallmark of shame. And self-compassion is the opposite of shame. So literally, the scientific definition of self-compassion that Kristen came up with has three components. One is self-kindness versus self-criticism. The other is common humanity versus isolation. And the third is mindfulness versus over-identification or self-absorption. Those uh, opposites, namely self-criticism, isolation, and over-identification or self-absorption are actually qualities of shame. So theoretically, simply being compassionate to ourselves is an antidote to shame. And the research is very clear about this. When people improve in almost anything they're doing, you know, when in therapy or as their lives get better, people tend to become more self-compassionate. And you can see that on scales of self-compassion as scales of self-compassion go up, scales of shame go down. So both empirically and theoretically, self-compassion is an antidote to shame. And I found this in, in my own experience of public speaking anxiety. You know, I didn't know that I was suffering from a shame disorder. I thought it was an anxiety disorder. But after I learned self-compassion, I started to feel better. Then I was able to actually look more closely at what was going on. And I said, oh, my goodness, this whole time I was suffering from shame. I didn't know it. But the point is that self-compassion actually addressed the shame, downregulated the shame to the point that I could actually see it and then start to intentionally work with it. So in this way, this self-absorption aspect is we need to look at as actually a hallmark of shame. We're not being, you know, shameful for being self-absorbed. When we feel shame, we cannot not be self-absorbed. We are self-absorbed. It simply means I'm feeling shame. And when that's the case, then if we think, oh, how can I, you know, get out of this state or how can I free my heart? The answer is, you don't need to go into shame anymore. What you need to do is to start being kind to yourself because you're feeling shame. And then we notice that we have less shame and less self-absorption. Beautiful, Chris. Beautiful. It's this strange tension as you're talking between the shame that we all have that is part of being human, and yet we don't want to indulge it. There's this odd dynamic. Can you share a little bit about how is it possible that we all have this thing and yet we shouldn't be this thing? Well, so first of all, shame is probably the most difficult human emotion and also one of the most uncomfortable human emotions because what's unique about shame is that it attacks the sense of self. When the sense of self is under attack, then we try to disappear. You know, we go small, we go silent, we go away. You know, we want to sink into the floor. Basically, it's hard to work with shame because no one's home. You know, we check out. We check out by drinking too much, by, you know, reckless activities, often simply by dissociation when the shame is tough, is tough enough. So shame is a very tricky emotion. It's, it rattles our nerves because it is a self-attack. 
Whereas other emotions are not quite a self-attack. They have aspects of self-attack, but that's not actually what they're all about. So when the sense of self is under attack, every fiber in our body gets mobilized to either get away, mostly to just get away. And then once we've been away for a while, sometimes we just kind of calm down, but we've never addressed the problem. This is frankly why shame is so sticky because it's, you know, it's basically an emotion of denial. <laughs> we, we don't want to have it. We want to disappear from it. But uh, shame contains within it treasures, you know, like in the Hoffman process, you're really creating a social context, a loving community, a kind community where people then feel the courage to look into shame and actually to name and to see those moments in relationship to my mother, in, the, in relationship to my father, when I learned certain things because of this natural desire to be loved, I took on so many things consciously and unconsciously from, from the caregivers because I needed to be loved. I needed to be in relationship. I needed to be in love. And that process of actually getting to the event is a kind of slipping through the net of shame. You know, shame kind of traps us and says, look no further, go away. But then in a kind of compassionate environment, you say, oh, no, no, no. What we're going to do is actually look toward. And we're not only going to look toward and say, oh, I'm feeling shame. We're going to look even through it and see what were the interactions out of which this web of shame emerged. And that process is an incredibly heroic process, is an incredibly courageous process, and ultimately profoundly transformative because we have gone where angels fear to tread into the actual original experience that I was trying no longer to feel. Chris, have you taken the process? <laughs> because it sounds so beautifully descriptive of the experience during the week. So what a beautiful thing. I'm, I looked at the research study that came out on this. To me, it's, it's self-evident that this would be a transformative in many different areas of one's life because it gets to a, you know, fundamental underlying issues. It dismantles the armor, you know, the patterns, the armor that we build around unacceptable experience. In your description of shame, one of the many things you said was nobody's home. And in your conversation with Brene Brown on her podcast, you talk about meditation and how you so appreciate it because you go home. I love the metaphor of home. Will you talk a little bit about what it means to you in meditation and what home means to you in general around that? Well, first of all, I also enjoyed on the Hoffman website to listen to people's testimonials of the experience. And a lot of people said, I accept, I'm accepting myself as I am. I can be more like myself. So that's home. You know, when we feel at home with somebody, we can actually be ourselves. Like I have the privilege of having a really wonderful wife and a happy marriage, which basically means I feel most at home around her, not necessarily in my physical house. I feel more at home if we're someplace else together than in my physical space. 
So home is where you can be yourself. But there are layers to what it means to be oneself. Okay, so where you can be yourself in a in a relative sense, like your personality has permission to be as it is. But there's a deeper home. There's a deeper home in which we're actually free. And this is what I was alluding to with Brene Brown going home. Going home, actually, I think my experience is it means to be able to let go of everything associated with our individuality and to rest in the way things are, which is way broader, way more magnificent than anything we can imagine. So our home is a beautiful place and it is not limited by our personality. So there are two kinds of home. There's a relative home and there's the absolute home. And self-compassion allows us to rest in our relative home, rest in our personality, which we come by it honestly. But that's limiting. It's it's based on desires and wishes for things to be one way and another. The whole personality is the construction, is a web of desire. But when we can relinquish these desires, then we can actually really rest in the way things are rather than in any you know, conditioned structure that we've created. So in my view, before you asked what's relevant for you right now in, in regard to self-compassion, so self-compassion, I think, is the first step but then that leads to self-confidence. Self-confidence means I'm okay. Chris is okay. Drew is okay. This personality is okay. It's very conditional. You know, it, it suffers, but it's human. It's okay. That's self-confidence. And then once we have self-confidence, then we can have self-surrender. In other words, we actually don't even need it anymore because we're not trying to protect against something. I can imagine in the Hoffman process, once you look deeply at how the personality emerged out of childhood experience, then you actually don't need to maintain those patterns. You don't need to maintain quite the same personality anymore. You know, your friends and neighbors will say, you know, he's different after Hoffman or she's different after Hoffman. Once we have kind of confidence in our personality, then we can surrender it. And surrendering it is the next step to going home. Letting go, it's such a relief to let go of individuality and then to rest in the larger self. You know, like in Hoffman, you talk about the spiritual self, the larger self with an S, where you just can be what is rather than having to spend your whole day propping up something that happens to be associated with your individuality. That's home. That's the ultimate home, in my view. So many students come to the process wanting that confidence, that self-confidence. And I, I love how you say that once this self-confidence is acquired, then we move to the next step. It's only a step along the way to self-surrender. And then ultimately self-realization, which is discovering a deeper truth, which is hard to explain <laughs> and hard to know with any rational dual mind. So we've gone so big, I can just feel myself, the energy coming, coursing through me as we have this conversation. And I'm wondering if we can reverse directions and go to the pragmatic and practical. So once we understand it, we get that research proves it. What does self-compassion look like during the moments of a regular day? 
Very simple. It means that uh, when something difficult occurs, you can say something to yourself like, it's okay, honey. This is part of being alive. I love you. What I just said was actually the three components of self-compassion. Like, it's okay, honey, means this is so. Part two is common humanity. You're not alone. You know, this is part of being alive. This happens. You know, it's okay, honey, is validating. Mindfulness is like validating. Yeah, this is true. You're not alone. It's part of being alive. And I love you, which is kindness. These three qualities are embedded in self-compassion. And it's a it's what we call loving, connected presence. Loving, self-kindness, connected, common humanity, and presence, mindfulness. The more we live in with self-compassion as a habit, the opposite of which is the shame habit, the more we have the self-compassion habit. When, any, when things happen, there's a kind of felt sense of, it's okay, honey, you're just human, I love you. The most important thing is that each person finds their own way. So some people are more physical. So they might, for example, take a hand and put it over their heart and just rub their heart. And that could mean, you're like, ouch, this hurts. You've got this. <laughs> just a hand on the heart. Or somebody might, you know, say, have a relationship with Jesus. And when a difficult time, then they can imagine, in this moment, what might Jesus whisper in my ear? And maybe the person would hear, I love you. I'm here for you you can get through this. Actually, those three words just capture three components of self-compassion. You, you can get through this is the impermanence of mindfulness. I'm here for you. It means you're not alone, and I love you as self-kindness. So there doesn't have to be anything you know, Buddhist about this. Everybody has this innate capacity, but what we need to do is give ourselves permission. So we can do this Behaviorally, sometimes the best way to be compassionate with ourselves is have a cup of tea. We can do this interpersonally. Sometimes the most compassionate thing is to call a friend. We can meditate. We can pray. We can take a walk in the woods. The research shows that taking a long walk will increase your self-compassion. Getting a dog will increase your self-compassion. Doing yoga will increase self-compassion. Taking a mindful self-compassion course will do it. Taking a mindfulness course and for sure, Doing the Hoffman process increases self-compassion because everything I've read about this program and also what people say was so transformative sounds to me identical to self-compassion. It's just a brilliant group process which gives people the courage to bring kindness to themselves at the deepest, innermost levels of our experience where our personalities were created. So in answer to the question, like, what, what can you do? You can do just about anything, but it's, it's really uh, shaped and determined by our intention. So frankly, when somebody signs up for the Hoffman process, that's an act of self-compassion. When people wait six months to get in, that's you know, heroic self-compassion. And then when, when people throw themselves into the process in a loving environment, that too. So it's inevitable that self-compassion will arise. So the main thing to know is that this is an innate capacity. It starts with intentionality. And then a little guidance so that we know exactly how to do this. That's wonderful. Chris, you mentioned the word courage. 
It's interesting you, you, you use that word because it is one of the outcomes I see of students in the process, this courage to look at things that they couldn't look at before, to engage in conversations with other people so openly, so vulnerably. Courage is such a, maybe even an unexpected outcome of the process in your work. Do you see that as well? How do you uh, relate to, to the, the word courage? Yeah, well, so courage comes from the word heart. There's a saying, you know, the world knows no courage like that of a person truly loved. When somebody feels truly loved, they are not easily frightened. But imagine if you could feel a, a kind of river of love going through your own being. Maybe you're feeling loved by God. Maybe you're feeling just connecting with, you know, love. Or I imagine in the Hoffman process, you know, you're surrounded by people who are really good-hearted and committed and basically giving courage because when you're starting to quiver, somebody will smile at you and say, you can do this, and then you do. And so that's courage. So uh, we need courage from the outside and we need courage from the inside. We need compassion from the outside. We need compassion from the inside. We need love from the outside and we need love from the inside. But Courage comes from love, in my view, and love is our nature, so we can tap that. However, most of us don't live at that deep level, so it's really necessary as we learn to become more self-compassionate that we also learn it in community. It's called self-compassion, but it's actually best learned in community because community gives us the courage to go those places where we thought we couldn't. And then once we've actually tapped self-compassion and we go out into the world, lo and behold, we have more courage. Thank you, Chris. In your conversation, you referenced your marriage, your relationship with your wife, and your working relationship with Dr. Neff, Kristen. And we interviewed her earlier in our season. I'm just curious about uh, that working relationship, it inspires me for some reason that the two of you co-create and do this work together out in the world as friends, as colleagues. I think it's actually kind of unusual from what I hear. You know, personality-wise and also in terms of our skills, we're quite complementary. We initially met because she was a scientist, is a scientist, and I'm a clinical psychologist, but we had this shared interest. And we both you know, realized together we could probably do this a lot better than we could individually. So, so if we have complementary skills. We have complementary personalities. Even though I'm in a male body, I tend to be you know, more of a yin kind of person, and she's in a female body, but she's more of a young kind of person. And we happily embrace that uh, difference. But mostly, to be honest, I just trust her. You know, she's a very honest person. And I think she trusts me. And so over time, we've definitely battled it out on certain things. But one thing that's super clear to us is that that kind of rubbing produces something better, you know, than either of us would have generated individually. So it's been a fruitful collaboration. And frankly, I enjoy her very much. She's a funny person, too, you know. <laughs> Because she's so honest, you know. Somebody once said, how do you develop a sense of humor? Work on your character and speak the truth. Uh, she's doing both of those things. I hadn't heard that definition before. I love it. 
And so what what's next for you research-wise or your clinical work, your relationship in this chapter in your life, in the next chapter in your life? What's next? Oh, it's a, a gracious question. Right now, uh, we're, we're about to start our second pilot of an eight-week specific self-compassion for shame program. And it's kind of a graduate program for the regular mindful self-compassion. So actually, Kristen made one called Fierce Self-Compassion, which expands on the regular MSc course. And the shame subject, because shame is such a deep and profound emotion, deepens a person's experience after they've taken the MSc program. Then they have basically 24 hours to explore self-compassion for shame. So anyhow, this is pretty exciting for me. And um I'm doing this with a team of mindful self-compassion teachers. It's actually a lot of fun. I do like the community aspect, both in the development of this program as well as in the teaching of it. I do think the best way to learn self-compassion is in community. I also turned 70, you know, last month. And um, the Indian stages of life, that's called vanaprastha, which is a time when you actually don't have as many obligations in this world. And so, the imperative to be of service in a practical way, you can begin to hand over the reins to younger people and give yourself the freedom to do a little more inner work. Uh, So, in my life, I'm mostly not scheduling anything before 12 noon in order to make room for meditation and inner exploration. And my commitment over the next however long there's left in my life is to deepen that. But all the while, you know, as long as we have energy in our bodies, we have to move our bodies around and hopefully in a way that's of benefit to others. So I expect that I will be uh, continuing uh, along this vein in some helpful way. That's at least my hope. In moving your body, what are what are your some of your go to ways of of movement? Well, just before this meeting, I was at the gym, <laughs> and I lifted weights, and I was on a treadmill. <laughs> but I I love skiing. Next week, I'm going to be uh, skiing in Utah, and I like biking. And my wife likes hiking. My wife is in Patagonia right now, hiking, and we um, as much as possible try to enjoy the body and explore. It's such an extraordinary privilege and a treasure to have a human body, and especially if it doesn't have much pain. I think we need to utilize every minute to uh, uh, learn and bring some joy to others and to ourselves. Chris, your gratitude is exuding through your body, and uh, I'm, I'm getting a secondary gain from it. And I'm just so appreciative of this conversation. And I had a call with my colleagues. All the teachers get on a call once a month. So that is what's next for me in the community of of people who lead this Hoffman process. So thank you for your time, Chris. Oh, I just so appreciated this conversation. You're a very generous interviewer because you interview not just with your head, but clearly with your heart. It's just been a delight and I've been, you know, I'm very flattered by all these kind of questions that you asked. And so I appreciate that and hope it's of value and, and thank you for your time. Many blessings for your work and all the good people uh, at Hoffman. Special shout out to uh, Kevin Ayers, now a good friend and uh, 
I know that Hoffman will thrive in the coming years because of people like yourselves. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.